Welcome back to the Moody Propcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our guest, Professor Jeremy Pettit. Professor Pettit has poured his life into communications, leadership, and teaching in a variety of contexts. Professor Pettit currently teaches organizational media for the communications department at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. His areas of instruction include media strategies, nonprofit communications, team dynamics, visual design, and public speaking. Professor Pettit has previously taught for eight years as an adjunct professor in the communications department at Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois. He graduated summa cum laude with a Master of Arts in Communication and Culture from Trinity Graduate School, as well as a Bachelor of Arts in Ministerial Studies from Christian Life College. In his most recent business role, Jeremy served for seven years as Vice President for Awana, a global Christian nonprofit organization that currently engages over 4 million children, youth, and adults in over 120 countries around the world. Professor Pettit also currently serves as an executive pastor at his church, the Hope Collective, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Professor Pettit, thank you for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well. How are you, Jonah? I'm doing all right. It's been a long day, but it's a snowy day right here in Chicago, but we are in the studio right now, nice and comfy and warm, and I'm excited to do this episode today. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I walk from the train, so it definitely is a snowy day with a nice long walk. Thankfully, not too windy in the Windy City today. So, Yeah, thankfully. Sheesh. <laughs> All right. So, Professor Petta, tell us how you found yourself working in the intersection between nonprofit business leadership, pastoral ministry, and academia as a professor in communications and culture. So, well, a while ago, several decades ago, I was working as a youth pastor, and I'd finished my bachelor's in ministerial studies and basically was starting to look at prospectus if I wanted to go get an MDiv or something like that. And I looked over the list of classes and realized that uh, much like the students at Moody Bible Institute, I, I took some of these classes already. And I was kind of like, do I want to do this again at a deeper level? And the answer basically is I was praying and seeking God, like, what do I want to do? It really boiled down to two things. I really wanted to learn how do we listen effectively to the world and what they're trying to say. And I don't mean like what they're saying in terms of like, these are their words and they're basically saying all these weird things, sometimes offensive, sometimes hard to understand. I was really more interested in how do we actually dig underneath that to figure out what do they really mean when they're talking about things? What are they looking for? Uh, What are their needs? And then how do we speak back to them in a way that they would understand? And, and, And that meant things like realizing that often we say words as Christians that people don't get. Uh, for instance, I'd like to say that uh, we read through John 3.16 and we say the words like, for God so loved the world, and they're like, hold on, wait, who's God? And what do you mean by love? Because that's a really mixed up term for us. And who are you referring to in the world? Is that us? Is that the group of people? Is that everybody else outside of us? There's all these questions before I even get through the first phrase of John 3.16 and they don't get it largely because for a lot of them, they're not raised in Christian spaces as much anymore, so they're not familiar with the language that we would use to talk about biblical things. So I went and got my master's degree in communication and culture so I could take the time to actually learn how to how do I interpret culture and what they're trying to say uh, effectively and robustly so I'm not just taking it at face value and saying, okay, that's offensive, we're just going to move on. And how do I think through communication, how are we going to talk back to them, especially in digital spaces and thinking how that forms people and how we form our relationships in those technological spaces. So from there, basically went and became an executive, like you said, at Awana, trying to think through how do we engage students to be able to have some of those conversations and grow in their faith, and then started, uh, had the opportunity to come here Hmm. and teach communications at Moody and and talk about this stuff on a regular basis, which was an amazing experience for me. Yeah. So in observing this intersection between 
communication and culture and the different needs that we have for the churches and nonprofits to be able to communicate the gospel. What have you found that has been effective in communicating to this next generation? <clears throat> well, uh, we talk a lot, hear a lot of cultural discussion that's largely talking about the word post-Christian. They'll say, this is a post-Christian culture. And I, and to some ways, that's a, a term that makes people nervous, that, oh man, it's a post-Christian culture, we're getting left out, we're getting pushed out, we're getting pushed away. My response is a post-Christian culture, by definition, in my mind, means a pre-Christian culture, which means we now have an opportunity. Yes, we have some disadvantage. I can say, yeah, okay, they don't understand David and Goliath unless they watch ESPN or something like that. But realistically, that means we live in a pre-Christian culture. That means I can start over, and I can start telling the stories in ways that they will understand without some of the baggage that maybe wasn't helping us in the last hundred years. How do I tell these stories new? And the church has an opportunity right now to start telling those stories fresh to help them understand who is Jesus. He's not just a good teacher. That's not what he said he was. So how do I tell the stories about Jesus in ways that you understand so that it's not just, well, he's a nice guy, said a lot of cool things, and that's all. Uh, well, you don't know Jesus then. So how do I talk to you about Jesus? How do I have that opportunity to speak to the world about the gospel in a way that they will understand rather than the way we've been used to saying it? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Definitely seems like there are definitely generational challenges. Mm -hmm. is if you look at the, in the 60s, we see a society that was highly influenced by Christian culture, mm -hmm. where the majority of people, maybe, I, I don't know the statistics exactly, maybe 89% of people would say they're Christian. And at least they had some fundamental understanding of Christian mm -hmm. values and what the Bible is. But now today, if you ask people, well, the basic tenets of the Bible, what even is the story, the narrative of mm -hmm. the Israelites and the Jewish people, or what even is the basic tenets of the gospel? Like those seeds aren't there mm -hmm. really anymore. And so I'm curious, like, how have you seen that nonprofits outside of the church, obviously Christ has instituted the church to do his hands and feet. Yep. How would you say, what is the role of nonprofits in the role of communi communicating the gospel and being the hands and feet of Jesus in today's society. Yeah, and I would say the the role of a nonprofit is actually to serve as a bridge. So the role of the nonprofit is to uh, serve as a bridge between the church and the world and the spaces that the church doesn't have uh, e either the resources um, or or the advantages necessary to speak into some of those spaces. So you have organizations that are talking about helping children in poverty. You have organizations that are talking about clean water. You have, these are all nonprofits that are trying to meet a need in the world, but that leads back to faith in Jesus. That, that the nonprofits, when they're doing their best work as Christian nonprofits, actually serve as a bridge to the world to say, hey, listen, we'll start here with this thing that you need. And we'll walk back to help you understand how our faith led us to come help you so that we can hopefully walk back with you to the church so that the church can be. Now, the church has the capacity to, because it's believers working in many of these nonprofit organizations or because it's believers working in tandem or in mission or on, uh, in partnership with them, whether that's donations, whether that's volunteering, who are actually then having the capacity to engage the world in places that their churches may or may not be able to get to. Mm, mm. Yeah, it definitely seems like there are certain capacities that nonprofits can serve mm -hmm. in terms of their outreach and their sourcing methods. And yeah, it makes me yeah, really curious about like how should we think about really in relation to the church, you know, in terms of like we have the church, obviously, mm -hmm. but in a sense, maybe the church has its own limits in terms of what so much pastors can do in terms of what they're serving for their daily Sunday liturgy as gathering as the Sunday believers. So you wouldn't say like nonprofits are supposed to really like 
replace the church. No, but no. the language you would you probably use is more supporting sure. the church and certain roles that it couldn't extend to. Would that be correct? Sure, and, and because I think you, what you have to realize is that the Church of Jesus Christ is something that He established forever. Right. There's nothing that can destroy it. Mm-hmm. But I can look around at nonprofits and say, hey, this nonprofit was around, did amazing work for 20, 25 years, and now it's gone. There is no promise that God in that moment is saying, hey, this is what this non this nonprofit's gonna last forever. The nonprofit organization is not the church, mm-hmm. is not the body of Christ, but is an extension of what's going on in the world at that moment, in that particular place in time, and the need that needs to be filled, and how the church basically can use those nonprofits as an extension of itself to say, here's how we can reach out for the time that we live in. Mm-hmm. But the moment that it's no longer necessary, we don't need to do that. Now, some of that has been historically um some of that's been historically true for long periods of time. For instance, like most of the initial hospitals were things that Christians started. They were external organizations and structures that usually had people from the church working in them that actually served the poor and the sick and the needy in the community. We still have those. So there may you're probably not going to get an end to hospitals, but how hospitals relate to the church has changed over history. So nonprofits actually can serve as that bridge, but they're not the church. They're not the, they are they are the initiatives and extensions of what the church probably needs to do in a particular given society at a moment, but actually be able to recognize that they're not the church, so they're not intended to last forever. So when that need disappears, the, that need can go away. It's okay because the church will find other ways to solve those problems and meet the needs of the community around it too. Mm. So you would say that the purpose of nonprofits in relation to the church is to fulfill certain needs. And demands that are needed on maybe a, a worldwide scale, global scale, or maybe a local level as well. What are some particular needs that you see today for nonprofits that maybe aren't being fulfilled as much? What do you see a great need that um, during the age of today? Yeah, I mean, I think the key to understanding nonprofits. I mean, the way we would define a nonprofit is a nonprofit is a an organization that exists for social good. Right. It's there to do good for the society around it, whatever that good means. And and I think as Christians, we support nonprofits because they have the capacity to do social good, which we believe when people see the good things that is that are happening, it leads them to say, where is the hope in this? Where mm. where are we getting to hope? Right. And and they give them hope, and that hope automatically at the bottom of the hope at the bottom of all the good things that are happening, if they trace it back down, that leads back to the gospel, back to Jesus and what he's doing. So what are the needs? There's needs all over the world. I oh, mean, yeah. there's so many things that are going on that are kind of like, how do you how, how do you even step in and do this? And I've got friends in nonprofits doing everything, all kinds of different injustice things, that are illiteracy things, all kinds of different initiatives that are, hey, we need somebody to do this. Uh, everything from uh, to get some friends who work in clean water in, in different countries all over the world, in Africa and some in South America and some different places there. Uh, I've got some friends that work in trying to work with people who have been trafficked and, and how do they work through that and just go and help those people either uh, get out of that trafficking space or um, actually find places to live for kids who are trafficked, how do they find orphanages, those kind of things, to how do we actually feed people all over the world who are struggling to survive, get medical attention and help. So there's so many different things that are possible, and yet at each of, in each of those spaces, I find really good Christians seeking to do the kind of work that Jesus would want them to do, to spread the gospel that ultimately draws them back and attracts them to the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how there's so many different needs, mm-hmm. and maybe for each need, we need a specific organization to help fulfill that. Whether it's, yeah, like as you said, sex trafficking, people that need wells, people mm-hmm. that need help, mothers that need certain products to be able to support their children. Sure. 
yeah, every single organization needs to do that. I want to discuss a topic actually as well. You touched in, I think, one of the classes I took with you mm-hmm. about business functions within a church, and obviously mm-hmm. you have experience working in the business field and working mm-hmm. your way up to become vice president yep. of Awana. And you say, I remember you said that a church is not a business, but a church has business functions. Mm-hmm. Could you be able to expand upon that concept for our audience? Well, so first and foremost, like the dangerous part and some of the things that have happened in the last 50 years is that we started applying business models and techniques to churches as though the goal was to make the metrics work to, hey, we've got to get this number of people in the seats and we've got to get this much money coming in. And 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 we shifted the focus often away from what is the church for? What is it about? Good theology. What is the church about? Versus, well, wait, we just shifted and said, but if it's about, okay, it's about spreading the gospel, about sharing the good news, about making sure that it serves as a light, that it actually is helping to reconcile the world to Jesus Christ. That's God's mission. That's what he's trying to do. And we serve as an outpost and a group of ambassadors, an embassy for that kind of space. But when we start switching it over and saying, but it's really more about the only way to measure it is to get people in the room or to make sure that we're getting high levels of donations. And that's the only way we can really tell that transformation's happening. We run into some problems because realistically, Jesus ran people off. He didn't bring people in. So if I start using business terms and business models for the way that the church works, we wind up running into what you measure is ultimately what you treasure. And if I'm measuring the number of people in the seats and the amount of money that we made, rather than the impact of the kingdom and not metric that are quantitative measurements, then I start winding up with, hey, is this the kind of church that Jesus intended us to be? Now, the tricky part to that is that churches have business to do. I mean, they own property. Um, they have legal issues. They have to be compliant with tax exemptions. They have all kinds of things that they have to do business-wise. But when the business turns into, hey, the church is just a business, then it's missing its mark. It can't continue to just be a business because it's ultimately way more than that. It's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a business. It doesn't have business objectives. It has kingdom objectives. The transformation of a heart's really tricky to measure. And I've tried. I've tried to figure out matrix for a way you could think through that kind of thing. How do we measure when we're doing a good job? And how do we measure how Christians are growing? But it didn't come back to numbers. It came back to models that can keep coming back to the ways that Jesus talked about us, organic models, how ways that we grow. Those are the ways that Jesus talked, not in business terms. Now, not saying don't do the math, not saying don't have the business points that you have, but that's not the primary way that he was saying the church should relate to the world. Yeah, I think something I've definitely noticed that's concerning is oftentimes we can have marketing or market-driven models for our churches drive our ecclesiology, mm-hmm. drive our church liturgies, and often what come what the incentive becomes is not necessarily faithfulness to Christ or fulfilling needs, but rather growing your numbers, mm-hmm. seeing economic growth, fulfilling certain key performance indicators for your the, the, the growth of your business. Yeah. And those are definitely dangerous aspects that we can find how because you, let's be clear about something. Yeah. Because if we're not careful, the people who attend our church simply become customers. Exactly. Yeah. They're not customers. Yeah. That's not what they're there for. They're there to experience the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms them from the inside out to become the people that they were meant to be, the people of God. That's not going to happen. Yeah in a transactional relationship in which they are customers and they put their money in the thing, in the bucket or in, in on the online giving space and get the sermon and then all of a sudden I've downloaded what you said and now we've automated.
automatically turn this into a transactional and, by the way, technological relationship in which we're exchanging goods and services. They're not customers. Yeah. They're people who are made in the image of God, who are deeply loved by him, and who he calls and longs to draw close to him as people who, his children who will follow him. That's not going to happen as long as we keep treating them, Mm -hmm. thinking of them like customers. So we do marketing and communications and business metrics and all kinds of other wonderful stuff in our databases. Right, right. Obviously, yeah. We can't be arrogant, ignore that and say like, oh, the church doesn't have business functions. It's like, well, if you're a pastor, you know that you got to balance a sheet. You know that's an essential task. But I remember I'm taking a class called the Biblical Theology of Suffering right now. Mm -hmm. And what the class actually talks about, one of the things it addresses actually is that when we become, when our churches become market driven or marketing driven, what one aspect that can be left out that's very crucial is public lament. Mm-hmm. Like, are we going to integrate lament or are we going to try to, in a sense, polish up our churches so that we mm-hmm. can attract more metrics and more numbers? And yeah, as like right now, as we're recording, the Ukrainian crisis is happening right now mm-hmm. with the invasion of Ukraine by mm-hmm. Russia. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, what is the response going to be on Sunday? by these churches are we going to all address it and adjust our liturgies to lament or are we going to continue with what we've already planned to meet certain key performance indicators mm-hmm. yeah well and, and and the really dangerous question for me in there is and does that fit our brand so yeah. we can or can't talk about this because our brand as a church says we can't do that and that's one of the reasons why I'm been pushing like a brand is is a kind of a creation in which we as an organization say this is who we are as a people and and I get that the churches sometimes have to have a brand but when the brand drives the conversation not the identity of the organization should just be explored and explained in the brand hey this is who we are so we're just explaining with integrity who we are as people then you rob the opportunity to do lament or and and, and I think honestly you're probably going to see some sermons this Sunday and the next couple Sundays that are probably a little more prophetic that are a little more, hey, this is wrong. Hey, there's anger and there's injustice. So what do we do when this happens? And what do we say to people in power? What are we going to help people? What are we going to say to them? What are we going to uh, challenge them on? Not just necessarily to lament, which will be part of that, because it will be part of the lament of the loss of what's happening in the world, but it also is, and now we're called to speak out as prophetic. This is wrong. There's injustice happening. We need to speak up and say something. In in a democratic society, speak to our leaders even about what that needs to be. Those are functions that the church of Jesus Christ has been fulfilling for thousands of years about speaking truth to power, making sure that we lament in the spaces where they're suffering and walking with the suffering people and not just ignoring them and pretending like, hey, that doesn't fit who we are or it doesn't fit a brand or we can't really talk about that because uh, the people who are coming in the front door might be a little uncomfortable with us talking about that. Yeah, I definitely see the yeah the dangers of a brand-driven church. And one thing that I can also see the dangers is, is in, in a sense, like treating businesses or uh, not businesses specifically, but churches as brands that need to compete with other churches. Mm-hmm. When rather, like, we're supposed to partner together and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Sure. And the history of the church has really been, like, who's been establishing the first universities, the first hospitals, mm-hmm. the first fire stations? It's been the Christians in the church. Sure. Who, what drove society and the world to be literate was the bible mm-hmm. it was the printing of the ch- of the printing of the bible and the church desiring for people to want to read that and that's how our society has been formed and so this really talk ties into also to what i want to talk about as well next is 
as our society implements more technology mm-hmm. and we develop into more of a technopolitan society, what do you see are some of the the dangers and also the benefits as well as technology because we're integrated? Like right now, I'm currently wearing an Apple Watch. I'm sure. wearing a piece of technology. Sure. We have headphones on our heads. I'm mm-hmm. using a laptop right here, my phone right here. Like these are all effects of living in a technopolitan society. What do you see are some of the maybe some of the dangers that you see as we technology becomes more integrated into our lives? Yeah, and, and I I think that the, the obviously there's two sides to this that people come at this with. They, the one side says that this is that technology simply is tools, um, and and so it's tools. So we're just using them as instruments to accomplish something. We use them; they do what we want, and when we don't want, we can turn them off. And the other side of it says that, no, they're more deterministic, that the technology uses us, that it makes us answer the phone, that it makes us respond to the notifications and the emails and all the things that are going on. I think that if I, if I had to say the, the benefits or the tools are giving us the capacity to do some things that we were never capable of doing before. Uh, and in that, when we're using them well, when we're thinking clearly about what they're doing and and I would say that's probably the biggest danger in this is that it's not really even about the devices. It's about the thinking. It's about the way we think about some of these things. It becomes more problematic because if we're not careful, when we use them, they teach us to think. They teach us to think of, hey, the most important thing is how do I get there the fastest? Why? Because my maps have told me here's the fastest way to get there. We don't worry about taking our time. We don't worry about smelling the roses, all those things. Well, we cut Why? Because we're trying to get there fast. Technology is teaching us to think that way. That's more dangerous than the actual devices. So I'm not worried about your Apple Watch. I'm more concerned about what does your Apple Watch tell you to do? Does it tell you any more steps? Did it dictate to you how you're getting here today? Did it show you the path? Did it say what walking? Hey, you need to increase your heart rate because it hasn't been up. That's what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is the thinking that says this thing has the capacity to shape my thinking about my activity, the way that I should gauge the world, the expectations about how things should be faster and faster and faster all the time instead of more human. And so often what I push back to in this moment is to think about the kinds and ways that Jesus would describe a human being. Uh, Jesus, uh, by the way, was a tecton. That's the term we use for a technology worker. He was both the son of a tecton, which he picked, by the way. He picks his own step, his own adopted father. That's a really fascinating concept. But Joseph is a tecton. Uh, Jesus is called a tecton. They say, aren't you a carpenter? That word in Greek is tecton. And basically, so Jesus is a technology worker who, by the way, picked when he came to earth. And in the process, never except with maybe one occasion when he's describing the Pharisees as uh, whitewashed tombs or or dirty bowls that basically clean the outside, not the inside. He, He never uses technology terms to describe humans, which is a fascinating omission. Why, if you worked in technology of the day, did you never describe humans as tables or roads or tools? You describe them as trees. You describe them as organic metaphors to say, this is who we are and this is how we grow. Well, trees don't grow faster they grow at a certain pace. They don't. They actually relate to one another in different ways. They actually are connected to one another in networks that help each other. But when we're focusing on the technology and the technology is training us better, faster, stronger, we're probably missing something. So I'd say that the 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 benefits are very simple. There are things that we need to do faster, and when we need to do them faster, they do a great job. I don't want my airplane that I'm flying to go slower. It will crash. I want it to go the speed it needs to go to get me where I'm going. 
but there are other things that we should be doing slower. So that's usually the question I'm wrestling with on a regular basis when we talk about technology and how we interact with it is, does this need to be faster or does this need to be slower? Because some things aren't better faster. For instance, it's not better to get really amazing chocolate chip cookies made in a microwave. They're just not that good. But if you bake them like your grandma did, and you can all smell them right now, in the oven, and it takes time, but they smell delicious and they come out soft and gooey and perfect. Why? Because we took the time. There are a bunch of things that as humans are only better if they're slower. And those things are usually in relationships. Relationships are not efficient. The best times in relationships are wasting time, quote unquote, with your friends at a coffee shop for three hours talking about whatever you want to talk about. That's a waste of time. If I just wanted to convey the information, I could have sent you an email and we could have been done with it in 20 minutes. That waste of time, quote unquote, is what we call life and we enjoy the most out of. So when does it need to be slower on purpose? Because it's valuable to slow down, not just all the time fast. So when the technology is seen as a tool and I can use it to do the things that I need to get done fast and efficiently, I love getting my taxes done quickly. Great. I, I love that I have a database that will help me understand, hey, here's all the things i got to keep track of. But when it comes to I want to go on a date with my wife, I don't need that to go faster or more efficient. I need to spend time with her. I need to be there, pay attention when I'm hanging out with my kids. I don't need to go faster. That's the dangers and the benefits of technology is that at times if we're not careful, it'll pull us along to make us go faster and pay in places that we should actually be going slower. Yeah, that really makes me think about how technology and the commoditization of the different things for convenience can oftentimes take away from various aspects of community. Mm -hmm. I remember in Japan where I grew up, the way you would buy things, right? The way you would buy buy your meat or your vegetables is you would buy them each at separate shops, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And this is probably more or less prevalent in the States, but I think Japan is more um, it's a better example of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you get to know individuals, mm -hmm. right? You get to know the butcher. You get to know the one, the produce seller. Mm -hmm. And you get to know these individuals, right? But eventually the supermarket came mm -hmm. where they would put everything together into one spot. Mm -hmm. And this is possible through technology, through integration of being able to have these computers that can process much more data about how they organize shipping and products much more efficiently and you have cashiers and all these different pieces of technology that led us to develop into what we have is the modern grocery store. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes what I've observed is that this can take away from localization, mm -hmm. right? Where you don't really get to know your cashier because the cashier you go to at your Walmart is different every time. Or it's not there, or they've replaced right. it so you do self-checkout, and now there's not even a person to talk to. Yes. So I have no local connection to the space that I go and get what is, in essence, life to me, food. This thing that I count on to live every single day has magically appeared in a grocery store from people I don't know, and I put it in a cart, and I go check it out, and I go home and eat it, and I have no idea where it's sourced from, the people that worked on it, the people that were paying attention to it, the people that cared. I've lost community. Yeah. Because I went fast. Now, I'm not knocking it. I buy, stuff, I buy stuff at the grocery store too. But the question is, what have I? And this is kind of one of the things that uh, media scholar Marshall McLuhan will say is there's always a trade-off. You cannot have one thing without trading something else. Always. There's always I gain something, and in the process of gain something, I lose something. Hmm. So if you can't see what you lost, that usually means you weren't paying attention and can't actually do and understand the math of I lost something and I gained something. Can I actually see what I lost? Well, we got faster. We got through the grocery store, like you just said. But I lost the capacity to know my butcher. 
I lost the capacity to know the produce person and actually hear, hey, we got this new thing coming in because we just planted these and the, and the crop went really well. You're going to love it. They taste amazing. Oh, well, I wouldn't know if the strawberries taste amazing or worse or better because they just showed up at my store. I don't have any idea. This is a good batch, not a good batch. Is this something you should be looking forward to? Oh, these only come once a year. Hey, we got in something special. I don't know. Just showed up at the store. What happens when I go fast? I traded something. I gained something and lost something. And if you can't see it, you should stop and ask yourself, what did I just lose? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely see this tying also into a previous episode I did with uh, Dr. Varma, mm-hmm. where he has this concept of what he calls the theology of land. And so when we don't engage with the butcher or the mm-hmm. farmer that directly sells our crops, what we become is we become detached from actually how our products come into life, that they're all originally various elements and minerals that come from the ground. And as we everything becomes more commoditized and the supply chain becomes more complex, mm-hmm. in a sense, we forget to relate to the land. Mm-hmm. We don't know what, what is in the land. We don't know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. I remember I saw this product. I, there's this picture online of this product. It was some dull, I think, peaches, right? I think the peaches were like harvested in somewhere in South America mm-hmm. then packaged in the Philippines and then sold in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, right? But actually the way the supply chain works out is that's actually the most economical and actually most environmentally friendly methodology for supplying those needs, sure. specifically because people want pre-cut peaches mm-hmm. as well. But I want to talk a little bit more about social media and how this new revolution of how social media has become integrated into our lives and how community and what it means to develop relationships has totally rechanged, especially with COVID, obviously. Mm-hmm. With Zoom and social distancing and masks and social media has become something that we become more and more dependent on mm-hmm. as technology evolves and more and more into our lives. What do you think are some of the detriments that have come with social media today? Well, I think social media has tremendous capacity for some good things as long as it's seen as a support structure. Right. Uh, I don't think relationships do well when they're only based in social media. So let's say um, I have some friends. We hang out on a regular basis. I see them on the weekend. And then they post something to social media to let me know, hey, we're going to do – you know, we're having a party this weekend or we're going to go do this thing. Great. Okay. That helps me stay on top of or went to the zoo with my kids or great. There's some things I can stay up on. But realistically – In the process of doing that, it gives me the experience of being connected to them without ever being really connected to them. So we get the thought that I know you went to the zoo with your kids, but and maybe even I said I like that or I posted something like, oh, I hope you had fun. But that's an illusion of connection because I haven't really connected with them. If you don't believe me, flip the equation. If I said I posted to the going to the zoo and my friend said, hey, that looks good. Do my friends really know what happened at the zoo? Just because I posted a picture, they know about the tiger and the fact that it was sleeping or the, you know, the gorillas were going crazy because it was feeding time. Or No, they don't know any of that stuff, which is stories that would happen. If you actually spent time together and that intimacy, that connection that comes from being together in a space, when you slow down, um, is lost on social media. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't have some fun things to share. Right. It doesn't mean that I can't use it for things. I mean, my kids and I share different jokes or memes or whatever they're trying to tell me online. But it does mean that the best way that I can relate to them is often face-to-face, that that being face-to-face is a gift to one another, and that social media, while it can serve as support structure, never really replaces that well because I don't really get to engage you to be present with you in the same way. By being face-to-face, 
And to be clear, I'm not just talking about this from a preference perspective. I'm talking about this from a theological perspective, that the incarnation of Jesus, because if we look at the history of, of, of the world, from the moment that humans fell, God was using mediated communication. He was sending intermediaries, people to talk for him, angels, prophets, different uh, experiences, fire, you know, wind, all kinds of other miracles and things that were going on. Yeah, he sends all that stuff. But that wasn't it. That wasn't enough. That wasn't the point. So if nothing else, the incarnation of Jesus proves the divine priority of being face-to-face with other people. God didn't just want to keep sending people to us. He wanted to show up himself. He wanted to look in our eyes. He wanted to hug our necks. He wanted to walk side by side and tell jokes and laugh and be with us just like he was in the garden. So the gap, and when that gap occurs, we have to recognize that that's not the way God intended us to live in relationship. It can support it, but it can't really ever sustain the weight of the intimacy and the love and and, and the companionship that we feel when we're face-to-face with one another. Yeah, I definitely see in this generation a great need for physical touch, for being in person. I think a lot of people have been physically deprived mm-hmm. in their relationships and not just like touch, but also just being in person, you know, seeing their, seeing, seeing the sweat on their brow, smelling the pheromones that are off, coming off of them, being able to sense their presence in the room. Those are aspects that have been definitely neglected. And with the revolution of online church, I've seen, you have to create the nuance, obviously, that this has been a great thing, a revolution for the disabled, mm-hmm. the elderly that cannot move, mm-hmm. and the bedridden. Mm-hmm. However, for those who are able, able-bodied, able for them, a lot of the time, you know, attending church weekly online is not how we are meant to live as the body of Christ. We're, we're, we are an incarnate people. Mm-hmm. We need to come in person because in order to really work out what it means to be the body of Christ, it also means to work out who God is at his core, which is he's a Trinitarian God, mm-hmm. which means that in our gatherings, when we become the body of Christ in, in spirit and in body, we must gather together physically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and recognize that the, the danger that we've all kind of, and I think it's become probably pushed f- forward for a bunch of people to actually see it better, is uh, what uh, the MIT psychologist uh, Sherry Tuckle referred to as being alone together, that we're looking at a phone so we have the sense of togetherness, but we all know we're really alone. I'm still alone in my room. I'm still looking at a phone. I'm still looking at a mobile device, and I'm still alone, even though technically it looks like I'm together. So there is something about the physical presence component that makes us understand we are together. And in the process, and this is what has a huge impact, and I've been talking with some psychology and counseling friends of mine, but like... It has a huge impact because we've been spending so much time through Zoom, through all kinds of different mediated technologies that we still have to look and say, but I'm still alone. And there's something about just being with another person that says, I'm not alone. That desire of humans to be close and to be known and to be loved and to be in space with other people is so just core to who we are that when we don't get it, the bigger concern for me and the counseling and and psychology friends of mine is the mental health crisis that comes when we feel alone. We feel isolated. We feel left out. We don't feel connected. That weighs more on on many of people that we're talking to than some of even the things that were happening based on COVID and some of the disease and, and issues that we're trying to talk about from a health perspective, physical health perspective. The mental health things that were going on were probably almost as bad, if not worse. And we may be seeing the consequences of those for the next few decades, actually. Yeah, I definitely see this in a lot of the the issues for maybe the crises we see 
in the church, especially with the younger generation today, I've seen that in order for our, our faith to be sustained and for a healthy faith to be walked out, it needs to live out what it means to be the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that includes incarnational community and not mm-hmm. just being together physically, but also be being interpenetrating or the Greek word is perichoresis, you know, the Trinity, the Trinitarian members pe- interpenetrate with one another. And so also we must dwell in each other's lives, mm-hmm. be involved. And I've seen that and many, many people who struggle with loneliness can really wrestle and struggle with their faith. And I think that's because they're not living out what it means to be the body of Christ. Mm. Yeah, and I would I would honestly say you know I, I've said a couple of times in a couple of different spaces, but um, there are people who think that the devil's end game because the devil is real. The devil's end game is to kill you, and I don't think that's the devil's end game at all. The devil's end game is more to isolate mm. because that's how you a, a predator attacks its prey. Get yeah. it alone. Get it away. I can attack you a lot easier when you're alone. When you're isolated and pushed off from the group, you're a lot easier to attack and take down. So I'm much more interested in getting you isolated and then from there eliminating all hope and leading you to despair Right. than I am in, oh, being community, because if you're in community. So I go to Africa and I get to watch all kinds of stuff. I, I went on safari and I because I, they wanted us to film in different places in Africa. So I go on safari and I watch. I go during the Great Migration. I see a, it's a million wildebeests and zebras and all kinds of animals that cross the Mara River. So I'm watching this. I mean, it's an insanely beautiful thing to watch. But these wildebeests get to the edge of the Mara River and they see that there's gigantic crocodiles down there waiting to eat something. And there's one that's hurt, and you can tell, and it's making a ton of noise, and it's saying, guys, basically, it's not, I don't know what exactly it was saying, but it was communicating, if we go in there, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And so it was crying out loudly to say, hey, I need you all to stay with me or else they're going to eat me. And it was fascinating because the herd moved away from the river and didn't cross because they knew that one of their members wasn't going to be able to make it. They stayed together, and that staying together protected the lives of all of them, not just the one that was hurt. Mm, yeah. It makes me really think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. and his work on life together. And I think he really bases it off of the First Peter 3 where it talks about the devil prowls all around like a roaring lion mm-hmm. seeking someone to devour. And what he does is he takes you know one sheep from the pack mm-hmm. and attacks them individually. And I love how Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, really talks about that. Like, it is such a blessing mm-hmm. to be with another believer. Mm-hmm. And particularly for students of Moody, we can become very accustomed to um, and take for granted Christian community, whereas there's many people who live in communities or work in places where they're the only Christian mm-hmm. with their convictions that they have. Hmm. Yeah, and, and Bonhoeffer knew the cost of that because he's living in Nazi Germany, because he's seeing the threat of Hitler and then living in Nazi Germany while it's rising and starting to see concentration camps. So it wasn't some you know pie-in-the-sky wonderful idea that didn't have any real bearing in reality. He watched the suffering of the people around him, and he would refuse to leave, even though he had the opportunity. He refuses to leave Germany because he believes he has to stay with his people for this to succeed going forward. Yeah. So as we look to the future and we look to how technology develops, some people call it I believe it's the word is a singularity mm-hmm. where eventually mankind's bodies will become replaced mm-hmm. with eventually we'll you know replace our arms and our fingers and then sure. our legs with robotic parts. <laughs> okay. And then there's gonna come a point where eventually our brains and our minds will become replaced with with robotic parts and computer parts. Sure. Obviously that's an extreme example. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know how much longer <laughs> the existence of this current state of the universe will even 
uh, prolo- be prolonged until that point, or whether Jesus will come back before then. Mm-hmm. But what are some major technological concerns that Christians should be concerned about um, and developments that we should be concerned about as we look towards the future? Yeah, I think... Um well, first of all, there's a bunch of people concerned that AI is going to turn into like the Terminators to come and get us all and take it. Uh, I'm not as concerned about that at the moment, largely because what I've always conceived of is that the things that we build have our brokenness built into them. So we cannot create a computer, an, a simulation, a, an artificial intelligence that can think on its own without the brokenness that we already put into it. We don't know how to design something perfect because we're not perfect. So I'm less concerned about the artificial intelligence. I am I am concerned about the proliferation of connectivity that basically gives power to some of these algorithms and devices to manipulate and dictate behavior. That's of concern. So I would be thinking through very clearly, like, what am I allowing um, in terms of engagement for different organizations to know about me? Uh, there's a fascinating phrase which says that uh, if they're not selling you a product, then they're selling you as the product. That's for sure true. So if you got free email, trust me, it's not free. They're selling your data to basically make that product profitable. They're working to make money. That's what they do. So be careful and be thoughtful, mindful, aware of what does that mean in terms of your engagement. Um, in terms of the singularity, I think there's some fascinating discussions going on there. But I think the pro- the bigger problem is uh, I, I'm not concerned about it in my lifetime, probably, or in your lifetime, Jonah, to be honest, simply because... To do that, they've all admitted that for the singularity to occur, we have to understand how the human brain works, and they still haven't even cracked that code yet because they're still trying to figure out, okay, it has electrical impulses, things move around, but we don't even know how it works. We don't know what it does. And the danger and the question that many of them are asking is, is a memory located at, let's say, your memory, the first time you went and played baseball or the first time you went to a museum, is that actually physically located in a spot in your brain? Is it like an actual atomic structure that has printed somewhere? And the truth is they don't know. They can't find it. They don't think so. So if you don't understand how the mind works, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to connect these uh, wonderfully powerful technological devices with a brain that can do things that these wonderfully technological devices can't even figure out. They have robots right now that they're trying to get to figure out just how to walk down a street and interpret when is the person mad at you? What is that? sign mean? What is the environment that's created? We're all processing that. We're actually all walking through that environment, understanding most of what's happening. And these technological devices can't even come close to that. So I'm, I'm not as concerned about that. What I, what I am concerned about is that people uh, will be tempted to retreat into realities that they've constructed, metaverse, whatever you want to call those new spaces, uh, because they're more Uh, in control and they appeal to our brokenness because we can form them and shape them however we want. And in that sense, they will push us. The the most dangerous part for me is that we're we're giving ourselves the capacity to play more and more often God. And we want to play God. That's what that's what the scripture says in Genesis 3, the base of sin is, that ultimately sin is our desire to be God, that we want to replace him. And when he tempts him with the fruit in the garden, he says, if you eat this, you will be like God. That's what we wanted in the beginning. That's what we still want. We want the world to revolve around us, our choices to manipulate everything around us to get us exactly what we want because we're selfish. My concern is that the technology might make it possible for us to be more selfish than we've ever been in the history of the world in spaces that we control and dictate and manipulate simply because we can technologically create them. That's dangerous. 
Because if we do that, which is what uh, one of the other things that Jerry Turgle is talking about in that book alone together, is the idea that if we do that, we will wind up preferring those digital constructions over the real-life people because the digital constructions are predictable, the digital constructions are uh, self-reinforcing and actually give us the dopamine hits that make us feel good, and humans are actually hard. There's conflict. There's relationships that are awkward. We have these weird conversations. We have moments we don't want to be with other people. None of that works the way I want it to work. So what happens when I create a universe, a, a digital space that I can enter, where it all works like I want it to work, where it all does what I want it to do? Ultimately, then I'm in control and I get to be God in that space. That's a more dangerous thing to think about than I am about the artificial intelligence coming to kill us all or me turning into a robot that lives forever. Those are far-off things. The more near-term things are the things they're talking about in the next 10 years that really do push us closer and closer to our desire to be God and make it extremely tempting to move away from the relationships with the people who we are embodied around and Jesus called us to love on a regular basis. Mm. Yeah, it definitely makes me think about how oftentimes I think the philosophical ethos that drives many people today is pragmatism. Mm -hmm. Like, does this work for me? Mm -hmm. And if it works, then it must be true. Then I'm going to adhere to this. Sure. And we have things like the metaverse and development where you can pretty much manufacture any kind of society or life that you want. And I remember this old concept of the metaverse, like second life, mm -hmm. yep. if you remember that, yep, yep. where you could kind of have like, and quote unquote, the second life. And people are all like, oh, this is where people are going to do work and socialize mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. future. And it didn't, it didn't work. It, it had like a short little fad. And then people are like, okay, this is dumb. Sure. This isn't real life. I'm going to get off this. And now we have the integration of the metaverse right now. Do you have mm -hmm. any comments you want to make about how far maybe the metaverse will even go? Maybe this will just be a fad that people will eventually drop off, or do you see this becoming something that will be integrated into our lives? Well, I think there's certain places and spaces that, I mean, we all, there's a lot of people playing video games and a lot of places to go and, you know, have fun. Okay, that's fine. That's the, I mean, we go to amusement parks. We go to other things and do those. Okay, I get it. Um, I, I think that the metaverse, first of all, anybody who's saying, well, this is just a fad, uh, you're throwing a lot of money at a fad. Yeah. So there's, there's, for me, at least the level of investment that I'm seeing from all different sectors into this space tells me that this probably isn't a fad in the traditional sense of being like a one to two year thing. Like it's going to happen. What it turns into and what it's capable of doing is a different discussion altogether. But realistically, the, the key component, I think, is how integrated it becomes to physical... Uh, engagement in terms of we're talking about virtual reality components, but now we're talking about haptic gloves and things like that that can actually make us feel things, uh, different pressures and senses of falling or, or flying or doing whatever we're doing. Uh, I think it has, again, some tremendous potential for some experiences to say, hey, what does it look like to, uh, for instance, I know that Compassion has used virtual reality to do some uh, campaigns where they invite people to walk through an African village. You get the capacity to go and visit a kid before you sponsor them. You can see what the light day in their life looks like. And that automatically has raised levels of empathy. So people start to see like, oh, that's what this is like. I should do something. I should do more. Great. But it also has the capacity to say, but I don't want to see that stuff. I only want to see what I want to see. And then we go right back to the thing we just talked about, which is, hey, I'm, I want to be God and I want to make this happen the way I want it to happen. So I think as much as it helps us to lean into our humanity and engage our neighbors and help us understand the things that are going on around, and, and even in fun and playful ways, but recognizing that if it disconnects us from the actual embodied reality that we live in, the degree to which it pulls us that direction it's pulling us toward our own selfishness and our own broken desire. 
that's the degree to which we have to be extremely careful. Now, am I saying that there shouldn't be uh, a space for that? No, absolutely not. I think that you're going to see some of those components. But what I also know is that in the history of the world, whenever there's one thing, there's always usually something balancing it out the other direction. Mm -hmm. The rise of the internet led to an incredible increase in extreme sports where people were going out and mountain climbing and surfing and doing all that kind of stuff. It wasn't like, oh, we did this. We played video games, but we never did anything in reality. We did both. So whenever you see the rise of the metaverse, I've got a feeling you're going to see the rise in a lot more uh, experiential things, travel, things like that, that people want to get out and do. So we'll see how that works out in the future. But I'm just continuing to ask the question about the human heart. Hmm. What exactly is it forming and shaping us into being and doing? And if we can't look and say, that is forming me and shaping me into the character of Jesus Christ, then I have to question whether or not it's good for our own formation and flourishing. Yeah, I think overall that really ties things together in terms of how do we understand technology, right? How do you understand these different liturgies that we encounter when we are interact with technology? And really the, the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves is what you just mentioned. Is this forming me into who Christ desires me to be? Is this forming me into a man or woman of God? Mm-hmm. And ultimately that's the question really have to ask ourselves in regards to technology. But as we wrap our time up, I want to ask our final question mm-hmm. that I've been asking everybody. So what is one book that you think everyone should read? That's a tough one. Can I get two? All right, I'm going to get two. I'm taking two. How's sure, that? Okay. Sure. So I'm, I'm going to give you two books that I got made you read in my class. Um, I would say everybody who's listening to this probably needs to read Life Together by Bonhoeffer, who we mentioned earlier. It's a phenomenal book about Christian community and what it means to be embodied. And then if you're really so, – so that's the embodied side. If you want to really talk about human relationships, that Life Together book lays some fantastic theology and groundwork for what that looks like. And then tied with that, if you could read them together, is uh, the book From the Garden of the City by John Dyer, which really walks through the stories and the ways that we engage technology. It's not going to solve your problem, but it's going to at least help you zoom out and look at the problem more fully so that you can understand what we're saying when we're saying it when we talk about those two. Now, I got tons more books, so if you want, you can hit me up and I'll give you more. But those two, I think paired together, really do a good job of helping us understand uh, the complexity of what we're talking about being human and engaging in technology in the time that we live. Yeah, I second that echo on... um Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, probably one of my favorite books I've read here in my time here in college. Mm-hmm. Would highly recommend for anybody listening today. But yeah, Professor Jeremy Pettit, thank you for coming on the show and being able to spend some time with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Jonah. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonah Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is the song Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.